Section 4 of G. K. Chesterton in Vanity Fair magazine. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. G. K. Chesterton in Vanity Fair magazine by G. K. Chesterton. Section 4 Beauty and the Bricklayer. I once compared a row of our modern houses to a row of tombstones in an old and decayed cemetery. But this, I must confess, was rather too cheery and optimistic a view of our society. For as it happens, an old churchyard is one particular place where you can still find that indescribable element of liberty and even levity. You can find it in an old churchyard when you certainly cannot find it in a new suburb. It is summed up in the single fact that, once upon a time, men wrote their own epitaphs. What they wrote was generally doggerel. It was sometimes drivel. It was occasionally, in brighter intervals, blasphemy. But it was something that man had really done himself, and gave him a right to his own tombstone like the right of a poet to his poem. You will not often find three or four doctors' brass plates in the same suburban street, ornamented with flourishes so personal or so playful. You will not always persuade city men to write short lyrics on their visiting cards, as these rustics would write short poems on their headstones. It is in face of such things that we are tempted to say that our fathers were more festive at a funeral than we are at a wedding, and that they are livelier dead than we are alive. But there is another way in which this chance image is applicable to our position in politics, and even more in economics. These old tombstones were often, as Gray has put it, with shapeless sculpture decked, that is, carved with some rude religious symbol. The more hopeful generally displayed a rather bloated carob, the less hilarious were satisfied with the skull. The point is, for the present, that the thing is at least an emblem of something. Now to recur to our pleasing, nay flattering, comparison of a modern gentleman's front door to his grave, we may note that the door also will often display an ornament. Only it is an ornament, but not an emblem. Mr. Smith's Knocker The door knocker, for instance, is sometimes molded into a face. It might be a carob like the other. It is quite likely to be a lion or a dragon or other frowning or grinning animal. But it does not mean anything and certainly not anything in any way connected with a front door. The frown does not mean privacy. The grin does not mean hospitality. The head of the lion does not mean that Mr. Smith inside is heroic and magnanimous. Still less does the head of the dragon mean that he is dangerous and savage. And this truth will grow the more steadily upon us if we examine the other houses in the sort of London street of which I am thinking, and note the curious fact that each householder is symbolized 
by the same image, a lion or dragon as the case may be. Mr. Smith is not specially likely to have a knocker in the convenient shape of a hammer, the natural ensign of the great guild of the Smiths. Any more than Mr. Brown next door is likely to have his front door painted brown in proud allusion to his surname. In a word, it is generally true that modern ornaments are meaningless ornaments. The thing on the old tombstone may be a very grotesque suggestion of a carob, and a carob may be a very grotesque suggestion of a spirit in heaven, but at least it is meant for something, and for something that means something. If we do not like it, we had better carve something that means something else, but not hang ugly faces in front of our houses, faces that are meant for nobody, and made the same for everybody. Labor and the Tombstone Now, in this rude example, properly understood, can be found the whole problem which is today the most terrible part of politics, which, in a sense, is far more political than any politics. In this, I mean, can be found the fundamental psychology of the great problem of labor, in the sense in which it is controversially opposed to capital. Our politics ignore the true idea of liberty, and it is here that they tend more and more to ignore the true ideas of equality and fraternity. The first case dealt with things like the house a man lives in, or the liquor that he drinks, and it suggested that he is not self-government in his leisure. The second case deals with things like the trade a man works at or the tools he works with, and suggests that he is not self-government in his labor. The image I have used of one of the long suburban streets outside London, with door and door knockers all the same, will serve very well to illustrate both sides of the case. The clerk who is put in one of those houses has no practical control over what the house is like, but the bricklayer who puts him in has quite as little. The bricklayer is expected to lay bricks as the hen is expected to lay eggs, with quite as little conscious control over the artistic shape he produces. The householder has no influence on the look of his own knocker, but even the man whose whole purpose in life it is to provide knockers has quite as little. And we live in a time when there is some danger of the bricklayer throwing bricks instead of laying them, and a younger generation, as it says in Ibsen's play, may be knocking at the doors with something other than a knocker. Oddly enough, the very name of Ibsen's play is to the point here. The point is that the householder is not the builder. The bricklayer is not the builder. And even the builder is not the master builder. The very phrase master builder, like the phrase masterpiece, is a memory of the age of guilds. Now everybody knows that medieval craftsmanship permitted a considerable play of personality, even in the lower grades of the work. So far from mechanically following any orders, even those of the person employing him to build or carve, the craftsman would sometimes fill his work with practical jokes against his patron, just as if he had fitted and furnished his patron's house entirely with booby traps and butter slides.
Thus, the miserere seats, on which the priests sat, are often carved all over with anti-clerical caricatures, representing priests in ridiculous postures. There again, by the way, is an odd significance in a name. Jokes more broadly comic than pickwick can be found in the place called miserere, which sounds to many like a cry of misery, and is really a cry for mercy. I think there is a moral, but it is not the moral relevant here. The Interested Paper Hanger It is a fashionable complaint that the modern working man takes no interest in his work, that he does not show initiative or take responsibility. It is largely just to say that he does not. But it will also be just to realize that we should be much more indignant if he did. We should be much more staggered if he began to show an intelligent interest in the doorknocker, as the medieval workman showed an intelligent interest in the miserere seat. The householder would be surprised, nay pained, if on returning to his home at evening he found the doorknocker twisted into an animated but unattractive likeness of himself possibly decorated with the ears of a donkey or terminating in the tail of a devil. Nor would his doubts pass away if he went on and found that the bricklayer had molded each of the bricks into a different fantastic variation of the same familiar face, or if the painter or paper-hanger had covered the walls with a pattern of small figures, representing the patron running, falling, sitting on his hat, tumbling out of his car, and so on. This would be a fair modern parallel to the medieval anti-clerical carvings, and this would certainly be a case of the workman being really interested in his work, nay, of his being interested in his patron. The modern world, with all of its talk of innovation, does not really allow for novelty. It does not provide for what a man shall do if he really has a new notion, when he is tied by modern mechanism either to the same old business or merely to the same old game. The clay in which the old craftsmen worked was more flexible, and could receive the imprint of passing personal fancies without disorganizing the whole of the larger design. A man could carve his own gargoyle without wrecking everybody else's cathedral. Today, it is not merely the fact that building banks or business houses is far less noble than building cathedrals. It is also that, in these new heathen cathedrals, all pleasure is for the architect and not for the craftsman, all design for the banker and not for the bank clerks. It is only the heads of business who can really use their heads. The others are truly described as hands. The millionaire may make fancy combinations of his millions, but the clerk who makes fancy combinations of the figures in a ledger is not encouraged. This is the real proletarian problem, and it is much more than an economic one. The worst injustice is not the inequality of wealth, but the inequality of intelligent interest. The new Renaissance must not merely redistribute wages for work, it must renew the work itself. It must renew it where all work begins, 
with the head and hands of a man. For the rising generation is, in a nobler sense, knocking at the door. It is not merely breaking into the house like a housebreaker, but hammering out a new door like a master builder. End of section 4 Beauty and the Bricklayer Read by Michael Shane Craig Lambert, L.C.